Computer, initialize Holosuite. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Sci-Fi Feminist Podcast for this week. I hope that you have had a wonderful week and that the end of the year has been treating you well. It is almost December and even though I'm not going to be at my house in December, I'm going to keep bringing you podcast episodes throughout December and January uh, so that you have some holiday listening and something to do while passing the time, whether you are going away, whether you are staying in your house. Um, at the moment in South Africa, it seems like the COVID-19 situation is worsening. So I hope everyone is keeping safe and healthy at this time. Um, as usual, first things first, I would really like to thank my Patreon supporters. Thank you especially to Ashley Ariel for your continued support. And um, as usual, you know, if you would like to have a shout out on the podcast, um, you can even send me a voice clip that you would like me to play over the podcast. Go check out my Patreon page, sign up, and um, I will give you a special spot on, on the podcast. So um, yes, for today's episode then, let me get into the topic. Today I'm going to discuss one of my favorite female characters uh, who is specifically in fantasy film. Uh, I have many favorite female characters in fantasy. I think definitely... Um, the ones played by Kate Blanchett are all up there. Uh, Galadriel from Lord of the Rings. Um, yes, I think in the future I'll definitely touch on some episodes of these. I feel like I should dedicate an entire episode just to Kate Blanchett movies because, yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, I'm 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 totally going off topic now. <laughs> Back to Miss Peregrine. Whenever I think about Kate Blanchett, I just get totally distracted. So forgive me. Uh, back to the topic, Miss Peregrine. Today I'm going to talk about Miss Peregrine from Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Like I said, it's one of my favorite fantasy characters, one of my favorite witches in film, uh, if you can call her a witch or I don't know what she is, a sorceress. Um, according to the lore of the, the movie and the books, she's an imbreen, but I'll get into that. Anyway, I think I've seen Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children at least 30 times, and I'm not even exaggerating. Um, I absolutely love the character. I think she's so quirky, so smart, um, so tough while being so loving and caring, um, so sincere, but also so cold. Really a dynamic, beautiful female character. And of course, I'm a big fan of Eva Green, too. Um, maybe I should do an, uh, an episode just based on Eva Green characters. Um, yes, anyway, so Miss Peregrine will be the topic for today. Today's uh, episode is based on a paper that I wrote, and it kind of ties in with the episode I did on Maleficent. So I'll definitely recap a few things from the Maleficent episode and then go into the discussion of Miss Peregrine. So I hope you enjoy today's discussion. You can look forward to a very interesting chat about motherhood and feminism especially and how this is represented in Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. All right, so then let's get into today's discussion. 
Okay, so first things first then. Um, excuse my voice condition today. Um, I have been singing karaoke today for, I don't know, maybe three hours. Um, so sorry if my voice sounds a bit raw. Um, <clears throat> maybe it's a, a, a deep, sexy voice <laughs> for today's episode. So sorry about my voice. Uh, just a disclaimer. Um, all right. So what we need to touch on first before being able to understand Maleficent is uh, once again, of course, and I've discussed this topic in many episodes, um, motherhood and feminism. Now, as you know, and as I've mentioned hundreds of times before, um, feminism and motherhood have a bit of a complicated relationship. It is because um, since the first wave of feminism, um, this has been a central issue. So what happened during the first wave is actually, um, if you've watched the film Suffragette, you'll see that it was quite a bad time for women. Um, I think there weren't many contraceptives or maybe people didn't believe in contraceptives, but women had a lot of children and many times at quite a young age. And then... Worst of all is um, during the first wave, so late Victorian era, um, late 1800s, early 1900s, um, women didn't even have custody rights over their children in the case of a divorce. Now, for example, say during that time, your husband cheated on you and you wanted to divorce him. Uh, first of all, you wouldn't be able to because you won't have money because... Um, you know, it was the Victorian era. And um, second of all, if you wanted to divorce him, he would be able to keep the children, even though it was his mistake or his fault. So many first wave feminists actually fought for women to have equal custody rights over their children. And then this is a topic that was picked up again by second wave feminists. So as you know, uh, Betty Friedan's seminal early liberal second wave feminist book it is called the feminine mystique it identifies the and i quote unquote the problem that has no name which is basically what housewives have been experiencing um during that time um housewives would suffer from depression feelings of meaninglessness um all these sorts of things um and betty friedan argued that it is because first of all uh, women are not working and they should be working as men do in order to not get this problem that has no name. And then second of all, um, women have too many children at a too young age. So many women would actually have three or four children by the age of 20 or 21 because they would get married by 17 or 18. Um, and this was just the way things were in the 60s. So the second wave feminists actually, um, you wouldn't say looked down on motherhood a little bit, but... Uh, they were very skeptical of motherhood. They felt that motherhood was one of the reasons why women become oppressed in the first place because women are confined to the home. They are confined to stereotypical gender roles because of raising kids and because of being able to bear children. Um, of course, women have been stereotyped as being more primitive, closer to the earth, Um all these negative connotations that come with the fact that women are able to bear children, 
And it is also suggested that because women are able to bear children, their natural place or position should be to raise children. And then because women would stay at home raising children, the men would go to work, make money, and then, um, yeah, it, it didn't turn out to be a very good situation for women at that time. So um, in movies then too, um, yeah, I talk a lot about science fiction because, you know, that's just what I like. And most of my research is in sci-fi. But um, if we go back to something like Aliens, again, for example, Ellen Ripley, one of the most progressive, one of the toughest, one of the most masculine um, female heroes that we've seen in film, I think even until today, um, she is still criticized by academics for the emphasis that is placed on her as a mother. So it seems that motherhood, um, first of all, women struggle to get away from it, even in representations of women on in film. Um, if we look at Alien, first in Alien, um, Ripley saves her cat. So even though, um, yeah, uh, she's, I mean, yeah, humans can't give birth to cats. Um, but, you know, I also have two cats and I think I would consider myself a mom to my cats. Although I think <laughs> they think I'm just like someone that lives with them and someone that uses their furniture and someone that takes up space in their house, obviously. So um, <laughs> I don't know if my cats see me as a mom, but... Um, yeah, anyway, I think they just think I'm someone that takes up their space. Um, but uh, people argue that Ripley's role as a mother is already prefigured in Alien, where she's seen taking care of the cat Jonesy. And then, of course, in the second Alien movie called Aliens, because <laughs> they encounter a lot of aliens in that movie, um, Ripley kind of adopts, uh, quote unquote, a little girl named Newt. And then in Alien 3, um, Ripley actually literally is the host or kind of the womb for an alien queen for a xenomorph. And so, of course, she kills herself in the end to destroy it. And then she is resurrected 200 years later through science. Um, yeah, pure science fiction. I love it. Um and then once again, she gives birth, uh, not traditional birth, um, birth in a sort of a scientific way through some scientific extraction to an alien queen who then gives birth to this really ugly other alien who recognizes Ripley as his mother. Um, there's this beautiful quote where she says, I am the monster's mother. And it's like, ah, so cool. Um, yeah, I even made a t-shirt of it. <laughs> if you want to wear a t-shirt with that, um, if you're a mom listening to this, uh, I don't know if you sometimes feel like your kids are monsters. Uh, sometimes I feel like my cats are monsters because sometimes they slap me while I'm eating. Uh, anyway, uh, so Ripley is continually shown to be a mother. Now, why am I talking about Ripley? Um, this is important for the discussion of Miss Peregrine because, because of this emphasis on motherhood. So even though we have this super tough, you know, probably the representative of tough women on screen, um, Ellen Ripley, she is still shown to to be a mother, and she's still largely framed in terms of her motherhood. Now, 
Although many people would argue that that takes away from Ripley's potential as an empowered female character, um, there's actually some theorists who who said actually no, the fact that Ripley is a mother and especially an adoptive mother, um, Ripley doesn't actually have biological children of her own except for Amanda Ripley, who Ripley never sees again. Um, if you watch the extended cut of Aliens, you'll see that actually Amanda Ripley died at the age of 66, I think from cancer. Um, yes, so Ripley never sees her biological daughter again. Um, she, she, she's always framed in terms of adoptive motherhood. Now, um, I quote from two theorists, they are called Bach and Langer, that is their surnames. They say, and I start the quote, Ripley's motherhood of Newt is unconnected to the process of childbearing as Newt is her surrogate, but not her biological daughter. The relationship therefore represents a fracturing of the normatively sexual mode of motherhood in her emotional connection to Newt Newt, despite her lack of biological connection, rather than because of the biological connection between a mother and a daughter. They say it is an active and chosen connection rather than a passive biological connection and functions as a site of Ripley's power. So these theorists actually argue that Ripley, especially as an adoptive mother, is empowered because... Um, that institution, that whole thing where women are seen as the bearers of children and then raising children, all of that thing, those things that eventually ends up in women's oppression, they argue that Ripley is separate of that because Ripley never gives birth biologically. Now, of course, this quote, you know, it is arguable um, that, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 yeah, how can I say? This is not the absolute truth. Um, you can argue for it either way, but I kind of like this argument because it ties in with Miss Peregrine. Now, as you actually know, Miss Peregrine also does not have any biological children. Um, she, as an imbreen, is predestined from birth to take care of other peculiar children. Um, so especially children, other peculiars, they call them. Uh, so if you're unaware of the, uh, how can I say, the, the canon um, in terms of Miss Peregrine's home for peculiar children, let me uh, briefly explain some background before I actually get into it. So um, they are, there are these people, they're called peculiars, and they have kind of like special powers. So um, all of them can do different things. Um, I love it because their superpowers are quite strange. Uh, <laughs> I think that's why I love that movie so much. It's kind of quirky. Um, you know, it's not things like they can fly. Like, um, they have very weird special powers. Like, um, yeah, the one boy, when he opens his mouth, bees come out. And the one girl has, like, this big monster mouth at the back of her head. Like, it's a bit <laughs> strange. Uh, they're not quite superpowers, maybe. They just have special abilities. They're just different. And then um, you have a special type of peculiar called an imbreen, which Miss Peregrine is. And like I mentioned, 
And Imbrin is basically a peculiar who is entrusted to uh, entrusted with other peculiar children. So the Imbrin, she can control time. So they create these time loops where they exist in the same day forever and ever um, to hide from these things called hollows. So those are Imbrins that went bad. Um, yeah, long story short, they eat eyes <laughs> of children. Um, so yeah, <laughs> uh, not good. They're not good, obviously. Um, so, so the Imbrine's job is kind of to take care of the children and protect them from these hollows and make these time loops. Um, they can control time. And Miss Peregrine can also turn into a, a bird, a peregrine falcon, um, which is lovely, of course. Um, I love it when she turns into the bird. They've done it very well. Um, okay, so that is what Miss Peregrine does. So first, very interesting thing. Um, Imbrines can only be women. Uh, you don't get male Imbrines in the peculiar world, um, whatever world we call that. Um, yes, so only a woman can be an Imbrine. So these women are basically predestined to never get married and to take care of, of their non-biological children. So here we have two things that the second wave feminists saw as empowering. First of all, second wave feminists saw marriage as quite bad because marriage oppresses a woman, according to them. Um, you know, I'm not saying it is like that still, um, or maybe not in all cases, maybe in some cases. Um, yes, like I said, this word is not absolute. Um, but according to second wave feminists, um, this is really what oppressed people. Um, uh, not people, what oppressed women. Um, and then, of course, uh, the other thing is biological children. And Miss Peregrine also does not have those. Because she stays alone, she never actually finds a partner and she never actually has any biological children. So, very interesting um, thing going on here. We see that in terms of this, Miss Peregrine is already an empowered female character simply based on the fact that she is an imbrine. All right, um, maybe some people might argue that it's kind of sexist that only women can be imbrines because um, that, that immediately ties women to the function of taking care of children. Um, that is the other side of the argument, um, obviously. Um, so yeah, anyway, it's interesting. I prefer to lean towards the side of seeing Miss Peregrine as an empowered female character. In the movie, I never felt that there was anywhere a point where she had to sacrifice so much of herself, um, not, not necessarily sacrifice um, how can I phrase this nicely? She doesn't, um, I mean, she kind of sacrifices herself by going into the cage in order to save the children at the end, but she doesn't sacrifice herself, if you understand what I mean. Her as a person, her as a woman, her agency, her, um, her individuality, she never sacrifices any of those things, her essence, for the sake of taking care of the children. Rather, she sees it as her sworn duty, and she takes that role, and she's a very powerful character, even in the fictional world. Um, not only in terms of possessing these special powers, um, being able to manipulate time, and being able to turn into a bird, but... Um, 
Actually, in terms of just her personality, she is tough. She does not take any nonsense. She kills people if she has to. She does whatever she needs to do to take care of the children. All right. So then let's get into a little bit of a more detailed discussion of Miss Peregrine then. But before we can do that, we need to first look at another very important witch in fantasy, which is none other than Mary Poppins. Now, I've touched on this in the Maleficent episode too, because Mary Poppins, I would argue, um, really shows us the first type of witch um, that is like this. Um in in terms of Mary Poppins, we have, first of all, a good witch. Um, so maybe to briefly elaborate on this um, a little bit more, there is a stereotype that only evil witches can be feminist because they are free from male control. Um, they, they are, uh, how can I say... Um, not defined by their sexuality, but they are in control of their sexuality. They are not oppressed by their sexuality. Um, we see many femme fatales, actually, um, as evil witches. Evil witches tend to be shown as a bit more sexualized and as a bit more sexual. And that is, of course, threatening to um, the in brackets, male viewer, um, women in control of their sexuality. Um, it's all got to do with these Freudian concepts of the castration cons uh, complex and all of those things. But I'm not going to go too much into that. Um, but it also, um, evil witches tend to be very powerful. They can overthrow anyone. They can overthrow the patriarchy. Um, all of those types of things. So we rarely then see um, good witches in terms of, you know, um, good and bad. Um, <laughs> I think that dichotomy has become a little bit uh, less black and white these days. Um, we get lots of anti-heroes and lots of redemption arcs and all those types of things. But um, in the past, you know, the, the distinction between good and bad was quite clear. Um, so when we look at good witches, they are usually portrayed as submissive. Um, they are portrayed as kind, motherly, all those types of things. So to be able to see a witch who is both good and feminist um, is quite rare. But I would argue that Mary Poppins is actually the first good feminist witch. Now, to go into Mary Poppins a little bit, um, first of all, she follows the tradition of the empowered spinster in children's fiction, and then she also fits this great mother archetype. Um, now, I talked about the great mother archetype in terms of Maleficent too, because Maleficent is very similar to Miss Peregrine in terms of representation. Um, the great mother archetype, archetype, it describes a character or especially a female and maternal character who is both creative and destructive, possessing a nourishing as well as a devouring side. Right. So the great mother, actually, um, it goes back to like very, very old societies where they actually worshipped goddesses. Um, 
and this is like millennia ago, like thousands of years ago, there were actually women-centered social organizations, and um, they call it a pre-patriarchal society in which women, uh, women's um, regen, women's uh, not regenerative, but women's power to be able to give birth, um, women's menstruation. Um, all of these types of things where now it's seen as kind of a taboo and also um, now where where women's biological ability to bear children has kind of led to their oppression. Um, in those types of societies thousands of years ago, actually they celebrated these things um, and they worshipped these goddess figures. And um, when we look at the great mother, um, in terms of representation in ancient uh, literature, stories, artworks, when we look at representations of her, even while she is suckling an infant, even while she's feeding a baby with her breasts, she is for herself. So she exists for herself. The baby, the child does not take anything away from her. Rather, it empowers her um, because she does not lose herself in the process. So just like I explained about Miss Peregrine, and it's maybe a little bit difficult to articulate this, um, she is still herself um, in terms of her essence, her, her fundamental, how can I say, personality. Her strength comes from within. Um, she does not actually lose any of her power as a result of taking care of children. And this is, of course, something that the second wave feminists argued. They said women have to sacrifice everything for their children. Women lose themselves in the process of raising children. Um, the woman's identity becomes based on the child. She does not exist for herself. Um, now, of course, I've never had children, and I don't think I will ever have, so I I can't say, um, you know, if this is really the experience or not. But anyway, this is what the second wave feminist said. So when we look at Mary Poppins, she definitely embodies the great mother archetype. She is both creative and destructive. She is nourishing, and she has a devouring side too. Um, Mary Poppins possesses great power, and she happens to use that power for good. But, um, you know, as much as Mary Poppins is able to make things right, um, you know, she definitely has the power to destroy things too. Um, so then she is a good witch, but she's also a very powerful witch, um, which kind of challenges the idea that good witches are weak <laughs> or good witches are um, pure and kind and soft and motherly. Um, of course, also, if you know Mary Poppins, she also never gets married, but her kind of mission is to go and help children that are in need. So she is also represented as a non-biological mother, as an adoptive mother who never enters into any sort of rom romantic relationship and who never gets married. So very many similarities between Mary Poppins and Miss Peregrine um, to the point where I would actually argue that Mary Poppins is kind of the original, <laughs> um, the, the one that came before Miss Peregrine and, you know, the type of archetype 
on which characters like Miss Peregrine are based. So if we look at Miss Peregrine, she then also embodies this great mother archetype. She is also creative and destructive, nourishing and devouring. So to give some examples from the film, um, she kind of, uh, so what happens is the children get into a little bit of a scrap at the bar because the one guy decides to burn the place down and um, they get there and she asks them, you know, did you alert the police, you know, are the police coming? And then they're like, yeah, you know, sorry, <laughs> we kind of messed up. And she's like, oh, I've already had to kill the police twice this week. You know, um, because they keep threatening the children because of their magical powers. So she actually um, kills police. She kills people. She has that devouring side. She's not all, um, how can I say, uh, she's good because she does this for the children. But she possesses the power to to incur great damage. Um, we also see that she's very proficient with a crossbow. I love that scene where she kind of picks up the crossbow and then she just shoots and then this big monster dies and she can't even see the monster. And then she's just like, mm, and then she puts it over her shoulder and walks away. Uh, really lovely. Um, she She's very skillful with all of these things. Um, so on the one side, we have this very uh, kind of scary character who is able to destroy things with this great power. But then on the other side, we see that she has a very deep, deep affection for the children. And despite her brave and distant appearance, um, there's this beautiful scene where she's kind of ready to say goodbye and she's like you know it's been an honor an honor taking care of you and she closes the door and there's a tear running down her face and yeah i think because of that scene i've watched the movie 30 times because that scene really moved me and kind of broke my heart because she's so sincere um even though you know throughout the whole movie she's kind of cold she, she does not um show the children much affection but then in some very small and particular scenes we we get a glimpse into her true love her true character how she truly cares for the children the other scene where we see this and it's the most beautiful most beautiful scene um there is one of the peculiar children, Victor, who died in her care, and she actually keeps him upstairs in a bed. And um, every day she goes up there and she takes him and she holds him. And I'm looking at the screenshot now as, I, as I'm talking, um, but it's the most beautiful, most beautiful scene, um, how she just sincerely, she looks at him and you can see how she feels so sorry that she could not help him, that she could not save him. So she really sincerely cares for the children. So on the one side then, we see this really nurturing and this very nourishing and this very creative part of Miss Peregrine. Um, interestingly, uh, and like I argued about many contemporary female characters, she also very successfully blends masculinity and femininity. Um, she performs domestic tasks in the house, actually. And, um, you know, that's a, a very, um, 
yeah, these days, I mean, if you tell a woman she belongs in the kitchen, you know, that's a big no-no. <laughs> you don't say things like that. You don't do that. Um, yet we see Miss Peregrine in the kitchen <laughs> cooking and taking care of the kids. And, um, you know, while some people might say, yeah, look at her. She's not a feminist character. She's just very traditional you know, like taking care of the children, performing all these house duties. But I would argue that this adds to her empowerment because it shows us how she very successfully embodies masculinity and femininity and how she seamlessly moves between these two things. Um, she's not confined to any stereotypical gender role. When she needs to be strong, she's strong. When she needs to be um, more feminine or motherly or cooking, she does that. Um, when she needs to fight, she fights. She, she really easily and really seamlessly moves between masculinity and femininity. And I would really, for me, um, that is an empowering part of her because it means she does not really fall into any stereotypes. We can't place her in a box. We can't really stereotype her because she moves between all of these um, traditional roles of gender very easily. Yes, so that is that is my take on Miss Peregrine. Um, I think I could talk about her all day, um, but really just what a beautiful character, what a lovely character. And as I'm talking, I, I'm feeling this sudden urge to watch that movie again. Um, I think maybe this is a personal story. Um, when Miss Peregrine came out, um, I'd, I never watched it in the big screen. Um, I only watched it a few years later. And um, during that year, someone who was like a mother figure to me, uh, I couldn't see her for a very long time. I couldn't see her for the entire year, actually. Um, not my, my real mother. <laughs> I mean, my biological mother, but someone who was a mother figure for me, whom I really loved. And um, I wasn't able to see her. So... I think that's why Miss Peregrine took to me so much because I felt like in her I could see a really a mother figure and I could see a lot of the person that I could not see. Um, this mother figure to me uh, is very much <laughs> like the great mother archetype, nourishing and devouring, uh, you know, strong but soft, um, really tough really cold sometimes, but really kind and truly loves me. So um, I think I saw that person in Miss Peregrine and I just absolutely fell in love with Miss Peregrine. Um, yeah, so that is my personal story <laughs> for the day. Uh, sorry, I haven't been doing movie recommendations. It's because I actually haven't been able to watch many movies these days. Um, one movie that is on my list, though, that... I, it looked quite interesting. Um, it is called Life Force. Apparently it's about space vampires, 1985. So I'm still going to watch it. Um, might be one of those trippy movies. If it's anything like Labyrinth from David Bowie that I saw, I'd be happy to watch it. So anyway, I'll watch Life Force and let you know how it is. Um, but it looks quite interesting. So there's my re movie recommendation for today. Um, thank you very much for listening to today's episode. And um, you can keep looking forward to episodes throughout December. 
And um, yes, this is the Sci-Fi Feminist signing off. Thank you as always for listening. And um, thank you for 1,000 subscribers on YouTube. Um, yeah, thank you very much for that. Sorry about the background noise. My cat is scratching my chair. <laughs> I think it's time to wrap up. Thank you for listening, everyone. Live long and prosper. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Sweet Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Fluffernutter, an expeditionary force podcast. One of the best parts of the book is when Joe introduces Skippy once they hit orbit. (laughs) (laughs) He changes his skin to, was it, Bud Light? And says absolutely nothing. (laughs) (laughs) That, that That was hysterical. That was absolutely hysterical. And why and why did he choose Bud Light? Oh. Joe asked this question. It's just like, how does he know so much about Earth culture? Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Blast Shield, a Star Trek Lower Decks podcast. I think we all thought Ransom was going to go into that fight scene, thinking that it was game over before it even started and he was going to lose. But I think the moment he rips his uniform off, <laughs> which is hard anyway to rip a shirt, but to rip an actual, like, jacket like that, mm. pretty impressive. And then he had, like... About, I don't know, I think it was like 62 abs. He just looked ripped. And then he was just like, you know, a little bit of this. Yeah. A little bit of that. I was just going to say, it was the way that he also narrated it. It was just perfect. It was great. Ransom definitely went to the school of Kirk Fu. Ransom Fu, maybe we should be calling it. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.